This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm delighted to have Dr. Morgan Nolte, who is a passionate board-certified clinical specialist in geriatric physical therapy. She's the founder of Weight Loss for Health, an online course, community, and coaching program to help women in perimenopause and postmenopause reduce insulin resistance for sustainable weight loss and disease prevention. She's dedicated to helping women feel empowered, confident, and in control of their health. She teaches women how food, fasting, stress, sleep, exercise, and mindset all play a role in reducing insulin resistance. Welcome, Morgan. It's so good to connect with you. Thank you, Cynthia. Always nice to connect with you too. Yeah. And so, you know, as I was kind of thinking about our conversation this morning, the thing that really stood out is the amount of diet dogma, nutrition dogma that has really worked against us in many ways, not only as clinicians, because we're both trained, licensed clinicians, but what we learned in school and what we very likely taught our patients in the beginning of our career is largely disproven and actually wrong. So let's unpack diet dogma. What are some of the dogmatic principles that you feel like women struggle with the most? Okay. Well, I think the first one is calories. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I think that we have a an obsession with calories and depending on which quote unquote diet women go on, that can be translated as points. Um, so that's the first thing that we have to overcome is that, you know, weight loss is not about lowering your calories. It's really about lowering your insulin and you can lose weight by cutting calories, but you're going to be hard pressed to keep it off. And I think that's really where a lot of women where the rubber hits the road is they're like, well, I can lose weight, but I can't keep it off. So calories is number one. And we can dig in as much of the science as you want behind this. The second is eating fat. So I grew up in the nineties and we had regular Cheez-Its and low fat Cheez-Its, regular everything and low fat, everything. And we have become afraid of eating fat. And that again, stems from the caloric model of obesity, because compared to protein and carbohydrates, fat has more calories per gram. So we thought, well, if the goal is to eat low calorie, you can eat less fat and more food overall, right? So, but it's just false because you're not looking at how your body actually works. So that's the second thing. This is a broad stroke overview here is that eating fat will make you fat. It's not true. The third thing is that if you're full, you won't lose weight. So this is kind of a tricky one because it took me a while of coaching before I, I realized I said, you know, I'm recommending that you eat this many calories, this many macros, and you're consistently under eating by about half. Why are we doing that? And she had followed these intuitive eating principles, eat when you're hungry, stop before you're full. And I said, that is a load of garbage. Because if you are overweight or obese, like over seven out of 10, you know, almost eight out of 10 Americans are, I believe 85% of adults are insulin resistant, your satiety and hunger hormones are messed up. So if you're trying to lose weight with intuitive eating principles, and you're finding that it's not successful, it's because your strategy doesn't match the problem. Okay. So that's another thing is you trying to rely on intuitive eating alone. 
Okay. So that's not going to fix this root cause problem of too much insulin. So essentially she was afraid to feel full, you know, and she'd say, I had the chicken and I had the stuff and I just felt really full. And I said, good, you should feel full. You should fuel your body. But in her mind, that was a limiting thought. And so we have to get over those types of things. Another one you need, you know, this one, you need mini meals, you know, five to six, seven times a day of eating because that keeps your metabolism up. Well, when you get to the science of, you know, how does your metabolism actually work? That's called the thermogenic effect of food, right? You do burn a little bit of calories with digesting food. However, losing weight is not about calories. It's about insulin and eating five to six times a day. While perhaps you might have a greater thermogenic effect of food, it doesn't matter because you're spiking, you're raising your insulin multiple times a day. Another thing, when we go back to the fat, I think, you know, as I'm a geriatric physical therapist and I'm much more geared towards the health benefits, the long-term health benefits than the weight loss. And one, another false dogma would be that high LDL cholesterol, high total cholesterol in and of itself caused heart disease. And so we know that eating high fatty foods, so saturated fat specifically raises cholesterol. And so that's one of the reasons where everywhere you look online, the American Heart Association, the NIH, all these major players who we think are credible, they say eat a diet low in saturated fat because it raises cholesterol and cholesterol causes heart disease. Well, that was a false premise. And you had Nina Teicholz and I recently had her on my podcast as well. And her book, The Big Fat Surprise, that'll give you the lowdown on the fat cholesterol link there. And I think that that's another false dogma that women have to get over if they want to lose weight and keep it off is I can eat fat. My cholesterol can go up. That is okay. That does not mean that I'm unhealthy. That does not mean that I need a statin. Actually, statins raise insulin resistance. So you're compounding one problem on another. So I think that another big diet dogma when we're talking about calories, right? Because pretty much all of these stem from the caloric model of obesity. And we need to change that to the insulin model of obesity, but that's the cardio's king. You know, if you're wearing, if you have an Apple watch or a Fitbit, it's counting your steps, it's counting your calories, right? So we were led to believe if I eat 250 calories less a day and I burn 250 calories more a day, I'll have a 500 calorie a day deficit. That's 3,500 calories a week. That's one pound of fat a week. I'll lose one pound. It does not work. So when we're talking about insulin resistance, we have to also question exercise in and of itself as a tool for weight loss. So Dr. Fung, I'm a huge fan of his work and I love the quote, and I think it's the obesity code book. And he, he said that, you know, exercise is good for us and we should do it every day, just like brushing our teeth but don't expect to lose weight. And that's the truth. You know, so when we're talking about the caloric model of obesity, cardio was king because you could burn more calories. When we're talking about the insulin model of obesity, it's completely different. Really strength training is key. And I like to use walking or stretching as a way to lower cortisol, lower stress, which will help reduce insulin. So those are kind of some of the major diet dogmas, they all pretty much stem from the incorrect caloric model of obesity. I hope that that 
answered that question pretty well. No, you did a beautiful job. And I think for a lot of women, they fervently embrace the calorie model. And even when I'm teaching fasting, either in a one-on-one capacity or in a group, 99.9% of the time, the first couple of days, who are like, how many calories should I eat? And if I tell someone that as a middle-aged woman, I never count my calories, even though my goofy, very tech savvy scale likes to tell me because of my age and the muscle mass and the water weight, this is how many calories I should eat. I pay zero attention to calories, largely because most of what I eat is unprocessed. A lot of animal-based protein, a lot of vegetables, a lot of non-starchy vegetables. But when we're talking about what our body recognizes, so let's unpack, you touched on the macros piece. I think this is really, really important for people to understand and to hear that certain macronutrients like protein are the most satiating. So when we talk about intuitive eating and how some people really don't have the hormonal communication working properly in their bodies, protein is definitely one of those things you want to aim for the protein piece and then layer in the rest. And I remind people that you know, a lot of women, as one example, are really attracted to ketogenic diets because their father, their brother, their husband, their best friend lost a bunch of weight. And most people, and we can unpack this as well, overconsume their healthy fats. And I always say too much of any one thing is not beneficial. So let's focus on the macros as it pertains to what's most satiating. Because I, I think if you've been following a lot of the nutritional advice, given out by most healthcare providers, by goodness, by the American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, they're still very pro-grain carbohydrate focused. And that, I always love sharing this, and, and certainly you live in middle America, so you can definitely speak to this. Farmers give their cattle prior to slaughter, they give them grains because it fattens them up and it raises their insulin level. And so, you know, really unpacking the fact that if you are listening to most governmental guidelines, the food guide pyramid is kind of made way for my plate. It is very focused on carbs. And yeah. most of us, if not all of us should be eating a whole heck of a lot less. Yes. So I think what's important when it comes to macronutrients is to understand that that's the fuel that your body uses. You never go get your blood checked for calories, right? You can't get a CBC and get a calorie reading. You can get a CBC with glucose and insulin and HDL, and all these things. So that's one thing that I wanted to dovetail on the caloric conversation is they're just a unit of measurement and they mean nothing to your body. So I like to think of macronutrients as the big umbrella. I talk with my hands. I don't know if this is going on YouTube, but if it is, here we go. So I talk with my hands. Um, Umbrella is macronutrients, the major nutrients that we need. There's three main kinds. There are carbohydrates, there are proteins, and there are fats. Okay. So what's important to recognize is that each of those categories will affect insulin differently. And under those categories, there's subcategories. So I'm keeping this broad stroke under carbohydrates, because I can get in the weeds under carbohydrates. We have starches, we have sugars, and we have fiber. There are subcategories. I'm not going into those today too weedy. (laughs) Okay. So when we're talking about what spikes insulin, what spikes glucose, that's going to be your starches and your sugars. So when we're eating foods that have a lot of starch or sugar, such as pasta, bread, potatoes, white rice, those kinds of things, that's going to be the most insulin spiking 
foods that we can eat. Fiber has a negative effect on insulin. That's why when we eat quote unquote whole grains, um, those are going to be a little bit better for us, but still pretty unnecessary in our diet as a whole. Like you said, with the protein, we have to focus on protein. Geriatric PT, I see firsthand the effects of sarcopenia or muscle wasting as we age. And I know that there are two components to a little bit more than this, but two to build healthy muscle and maintain it as we age adequate protein, including the dose and the timing and strength training. So when we're talking about how does protein impact insulin, it's a moderate effect, but it's not directly through blood sugar. It's actually through hormones in your gut. So that's what causes the insulin release to protein. And then the last is fat. And I think it's very important to understand here, there are healthy kinds of fat and there are unhealthy kinds of fat. So the trans fats and the processed polyomega-6 fatty acids. So those processed omega-6 fatty acids like corn oil, soybean oil, cottonseed oil, all of those ones, those are going to be inflammatory. We get too many of those in a processed diet. So trans fats and then the PUFAs, the processed, those ones we want to reduce. Omega-3 fatty acids, saturated fats, omega-9 fatty acids, and unprocessed omega-6 fatty acids, all of those I consider the healthy kinds of fats. However, your body cannot make protein from carbohydrates or fats. We have to prioritize protein if we want to build and maintain healthy muscle mass as we age. And here's the deal. When we're talking about insulin resistance, you become more insulin sensitive when you have more insulin receptors to receive that insulin. How do we do that? Well, you can build your muscle mass. Muscle is a huge deposit for glucose. We store a lot of glycogen in our liver and our muscles. So the more muscle mass we have, quite frankly, the more food that we can eat, you know, the more insulin sensitive we are, the healthier that we are. And so that's why in any meal, I recommend prioritizing protein. I aim for the high end. If people want to know, I do one gram per ideal pound of body weight per day. I think you're in line with that. I know Dr. Lyons in line with that. It's a little high, but I like to aim high. And if you miss by a little bit, that's fine. At least you're getting it. And the other important thing is dopes. And that's what a lot of people don't recognize is for adults, you need at least 25 to 30 grams of high quality protein at a time for optimal muscle protein synthesis. That means building muscle. Okay. So while protein does cause a moderate insulin response, it's okay because it improves insulin sensitivity down the road to help maintain that muscle mass. Now, when we're talking about fat as a macronutrient, that's going to have the lowest insulin response. Okay. So if you're eating things like olive oil, avocado oil, nuts, those do not have a very high insulin impact. And that's why people go on the ketogenic diet and they see a lot of fat loss because they're eating so much fat, they're keeping insulin low. But I think where they get in trouble here is they have that black and white mindset, that all or nothing mindset, which is another diet dogma that we can talk about and they can't sustain it, you know? And so when we're talking about macros, that's the big overview. You really want to prioritize protein, fill in the gap with healthy fat and fiber some people, I think there's differing opinions on fiber. I tolerate it well. I like foods that have fiber, um, like berries, non-starchy vegetables. I do a lot of those. And then you really do want to reduce the starches and the added sugars in your diet. And when we're looking at the my plate, you know how we're talking about that? I think that it says 
you know, non-starchy vegetables or vegetables. And then it has like whole grain, fruit, protein. And I looked at it and I said, where's the fat? And why is three quarters of this plate's carbohydrate, you know? So forget about the food groups, forget about vegetables, beans, and legumes, whatever carbs, proteins, fats. And then you learn the subcategories and you learn which ones are good for insulin, i.e. which ones have a low insulin response, which ones have a high and bias your food towards the lower ones. And I think that made so much sense to me. I really dug into this after I had my three-year-old son because I couldn't lose weight because I was eating cliff bars that had as much sugar as a Snickers bar, Um, you know, and it's just, I thought to myself, if I went through all all of this schooling and then never learned about insulin resistance, my patients don't have a clue. My parents don't have a clue. And this has, everybody needs to know about insulin resistance. And it's so much simpler, you know, it like cuts through all the noise So I like to say, if your initial litmus test for whether or not a food is healthy is you look at the package and you say, how many calories does this have? How many grams of fat does this have? If that's your old litmus test, your new one should be, how will this food affect my insulin? And once you understand macronutrients, you can understand how a food product will affect your insulin. And you can read through the BS marketing and you can read through the back of the panel and look at the grams of sugar, the grams of carbs, and then the ingredients list to determine if this is a whole real unprocessed food, high in fiber, fat, healthy fats, and proteins that will keep your insulin low. Or like a bunch, I mean, I just worked with a lady the other day and she was doing profile, that one by Sanford, but you can look at Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem, Octavia, all this stuff has a bunch of junk in it, a bunch of sugar, a bunch of unhealthy oils. And so you can just read through the marketing and make your own health decisions because it does start with food, but there are other aspects, right. To living a low insulin lifestyle that I think is important. So when we're talking about diet dogma, I think that's another one that it's only about what you eat and it's not because there are a lot of other lifestyle factors that come into play when we're talking about reversing insulin resistance by living a low insulin lifestyle. So Food is just one. And I think that's kind of a broad stroke overview of my nutritional approach. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. And in some circumstances, up to a hundred times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorbro.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R 
pro.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. No, and I think it's so important for people to hear this from multiple healthcare professionals. You know, the hormone hypothesis or clearly the hormone, you know, connection and, yeah. and insulin is but one of many. One of the things that I think is really important for, you know, women to understand, especially women as they're getting closer to middle age, perimenopause, which for a lot of people, it's after 35 that our sex hormones start shifting and we can start seeing little glimpses of what's to come. But I like people to under, or women, frankly, to understand that, you know, just where we are in our menstrual cycle can impact, you know, whether or not we are more insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. For example, you know, in our follicular phase, when we have more estrogen tends to be a much more insulin sensitive hormone Mm -hmm. versus progesterone, which tends to be a much more insulin resistant hormone. And what I see happening for many women as they're getting closer and closer to menopause they're becoming increasingly more insulin resistant. And part of it's, you know, you touched on and alluded to sarcopenia, this muscle loss of wasting, which will happen Mm -hmm. unless you work against it. It is a proven fact. I was actually in Whole Foods this morning, looking at all the meat and reminding myself when I was looking at MRI scans and it showed like what sarcopenic muscle looks like, you know, muscle loss with aging versus younger muscle, there's a lot of marbling. So when you think about when you're sitting down with that fatty state, it's because there's a lot of marbling and that marbling, that replacement of muscle tissue with fat tissue, adipose tissue changes the way that that muscle functions. So I always like to kind of touch on the nuances of other hormones and certainly 
you know, if you're leptin resistant, the whole concept of intuitive eating will be lost to you because the communication and I'm oversimplifying it between your gut and your brain is disconnected. That's why sometimes you'll see very morbidly obese people that you know they're sitting down, have a very large meal and they might've had three or 4,000 calories, but their body and their brain doesn't even register mm-hmm. that they're even full. So certainly that's a satiety piece. The other hormones, you know, estrogen and progesterone, there's so many hormones that play a role with this cortisol. I always say, if you're not sleeping as one example, but let's focus on insulin because I, I think for many, many people, and I include also a lot of healthcare professionals, we forget how much insulin is impacted. And if 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy, that means 88% of Americans are either overweight or obese, which means there's 12% of us that are metabolically healthy, which is astounding to me and beyond troubling. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what are some of insulin's key roles. And then let's talk about what happens as our cells become less able to communicate with the hormone of insulin, like what actually starts to transpire in the body, because this is really key. And for anyone who's listening, who's struggling with weight loss resistance or really frustrated with kind of some of the dogma principles that many of us grew up with, this is really, really important to understand so that you can be successful so that you can move beyond what you're struggling with right now. And and I'm sure this happens to you as well, Morgan, every single day on social media, every single day in my emails, I'm getting questions from women who are stuck, who are frustrated. And that's why the hormone piece is really critically important. Mm -hmm. Well, it's important to recognize in and of itself, insulin is a vital hormone. Okay. It's an anabolic hormone, meaning it builds. And I like to remind people that every single cell has insulin receptors, which is pretty rare as far as hormone receptors go. So insulin can impact every cell of the body. And it's one of the main roles is to allow glucose to move from the bloodstream. So blood sugar to move from the bloodstream into the cells to be stored. So stored for energy. And it's very important to recognize what happens when we don't have insulin. So if we think of a type one diabetic, they don't have insulin. Well, what happens? They lose a bunch of weight and they become emaciated and their blood sugars are very high because their cells are starving. So if your sugar cannot get into your cells, they're hungry all the time. So they're eating a bunch, but they're essentially, you know, urinating out all of this sugar, all of this energy, because their cells can't use it. So in order to be metabolically healthy, your sugar has to be able to get into your cells. Your body likes to maintain a state of homeostasis. It does not like to change. It likes those blood sugars to be in a tight range of about 70 to 90 to hundred. Okay. So after a fasting glucose, if you have over a hundred, you're in the pre-diabetes range. And What I would love to see healthcare providers do is check for fasting insulin, because we know that that can predict diabetes decades before glucose. It's just harder to test. So that's why we've focused on glucose testing because it's more readily available and easy. But in Dr. Bickman's book, Why We Get Sick, it's really good. He provides really good information and guidelines for how to get insulin tested. So what happens then is when we become more and more resistant to insulin's effect, our sugar has a harder time getting into the cells. And now I'm talking about someone without type one diabetes now. 
And so our pancreas needs to make more and more insulin to get the same job done. So compare it to an alcoholic. Okay. So they might get a buzz after two drinks when they first start drinking, and then they need four drinks and then they need stronger drinks and then they need six drinks and then they can tolerate it pretty well. No problem. So they're a functional alcoholic sometimes. That's kind of what happens with insulin. So if you eat five to six meals a day and you have sugar and starch and all of those meals, that's like having five to six drinks a day. Your body just gets used to it and it needs more and more insulin. Now, insulin is the primary hormone responsible for your body's set weight. So while the levels of insulin in your blood are going up, it's signaling to your brain to gain weight. This is very simplified, but that's essentially what happens. So that's really the role that insulin plays. It's responsible for moving glucose from the bloodstream into the cells to be stored for energy. Okay. Now, when that's broken, we can develop what's called leptin resistance. So leptin is that hormone released by our fat cells that usually says, I have enough fat, you know, reduce your appetite, stop eating. Let me use some of this energy that's already available. But when we have high levels of insulin and we store a lot of fat, we're going to release a lot of leptin. And then we have persistently high levels of leptin, which leads to leptin resistance. And we're back to that buffet that you spoke of with someone who doesn't need the three to 4,000 calorie meal, but they're eating it because their satiety hormone, it's not working. And to fix that, you have to fix the root. You have to fix the insulin resistance. And you do that in one of two ways. You can reduce the amount of insulin required and, or you can improve insulin sensitivity. So why I love intermittent fasting so much is it does both. You know, that's really one of the strategies where if you're not putting food in your mouth, you know, hormones or cortisol and whatnot, but typically you're going to need less insulin if you're not putting any food in your mouth. And it also just improves the sensitivity of the cells to insulin. So another thing that we can do is just, again, eating that lower carb lifestyle, not necessarily thinking of it as a diet, but thinking of it as a lifestyle, you can add strength training to build muscle and improve insulin sensitivity. We have to focus on stress management. Oh my goodness. We have to focus on good sleep because that's when your hormones, when you're sleeping is that regenerative hormone phase where your human growth hormone goes up and we build muscle, right? So when we're not getting adequate sleep, you're not getting enough growth hormone that goes down with age anyways. And that's, I think why perimenopause, when they have the hot flashes, they're waking them up and they're gaining all this fat. Well, it's like a five edge sword. It's not even a double edge sword, <laughs> you know, because their estrogen is going down, which you already spoke of is protective against insulin resistance. And estrogen is protective against belly fat. So after menopause, women are going to see that fat redistribution from their subcutaneous stores or pretty much on the, like above under the skin, above the muscle to the visceral store around the belly. And they're thinking what's happening Well, your estrogen's going down. So your insulin resistance is going up. And if you're chronically getting sleep deprivation from hot flashes or stress, your growth hormones, not as high as it should be. And so you're not building the right muscle and you're reducing your insulin sensitivity there as well. I think COVID goodness, I mean, that should have been the COVID 15, you know, should have been a really clear indicator that stress does contribute to weight gain. And I think we should talk on that because when we're stressed, our cortisol is released, right? And cortisol is okay. You know, if we need to fight a saber tooth tiger or flee a saber tooth tiger back in the day, we needed cortisol because it gave us blood glucose. 
so that our muscles could have energy. But now it's an email. It's a text. It's something on social media that gets us riled up. It's the kid crying in the corner while you're trying to be on a Zoom call, (laughs) not speaking from experience there. But (laughs) so that really raises our blood sugar, but then we're sitting at a desk. And again, your blood sugar can be removed from your bloodstream to store through demand or insulin. So you need to move your body, go for a walk, exercise, make those muscles pull the glucose in, or insulin has to be released to kind of push it in and allow it in. And that's what happens. You're stressed. Your cortisol goes up. You sit at your computer. You might emotionally eat, right? Because insulin resistance increases carb cravings. We know that because the cell, it's just like a type one diabetic that's hungry all the time. The cells have a harder time getting that energy. So it is, I mean, it's just a five pronged sword when we're talking about weight loss, but when you just filter it down to that litmus test again, how does stress impact my insulin? How does sleep deprivation impact my insulin? How do carbohydrates, protein, fat, exercise, toxins? You had a great episode recently on toxins. When all of those are filtered through the question of how will this affect my insulin? You can have a clear answer for how it's going to affect your weight because insulin is in charge of your body fat and your weight. Did that adequately answer the question of why? I don't think that we quite dovetailed on chronic disease and insulin resistance. Well, I think it's important not to interrupt you. I think it's important for people to understand that it's annoying when we put on five or 10 pounds, but if you continue on that path, there are more concerning things that can be in your future. And so I think it's a good segue into talking about, we know that as women get older, they're more prone to insulin resistance. And certainly if they're not on hormonal replacement therapy, and that's a whole tangential rabbit hole discussion that we can have, but we start thinking about, you know, there's a great book I just read and I've been talking a lot about it on social media. It's the XX brain by Dr. Lisa Moscone. And so really understanding that women are protected from so many health issues until they go through menopause. And so if your blood sugar and insulin are not properly balanced in your forties and fifties, you are going to exponentially increase the likelihood mm-hmm. you will develop type three diabetes, which is Alzheimer's. So cognitive dysfunction, we know women's brains of in their forties and fifties determine what their brain health and cognitive function health is like in their sixties, seventies and beyond. So this is really, really important for people to understand that insulin resistance begets other health issues. Yes. And certainly we want to do everything we can. And it doesn't matter how old you are. Everyone can do something. Mm -hmm. That's the message we want to share Mm -hmm. is that this is a public health emergency and we want you to be as informed as possible. And we're going to give you some actionable tips to do, you know, when you finish listening to this podcast, but let's kind of talk through briefly, like what are some of the sequelae? What are some of the complications that occur if we don't address insulin resistance? And part of the problem, and it's interesting, over 20 years ago, before I met my husband, my boyfriend at the time was an MD, PhD, and was here doing a postdoc fellowship. And I was talking to one of his colleagues that was at the university I was studying at, and they both said, Americans do a terrible job with preventative health. This is 20 years ago. And I didn't disagree with them. And one of the things they hearkened on was you wait until someone has diabetes. You don't get on top of them when you start watching the creep of glucose. And back then we weren't testing insulin, but 
fasting insulins, but we were looking at hemoglobin A1C and we were looking at fasting blood sugar and we were looking at postprandial, so post meals, and we were looking at glucose tolerance tests, which are horrible to go through. And, you know, I have to agree with that. And I think we're really seeing the byproduct of us not being proactive enough as healthcare professionals, patients not knowing enough to demand and ask for these tests and asking, for example, a fasting insulin is not a weird test and your healthcare professional should know how to interpret it. And we'll give you some guidelines, but let's touch on what happens when we don't manage blood sugar dysregulation, insulin resistance, et cetera. What is in our future? Absolutely. Well, again, weight gain, obesity is in the future, but elevated blood sugars increase inflammation in the walls of your vessels and inflammation and elevated blood sugars will lead to diabetes, heart disease, osteoarthritis, Alzheimer's disease. As you spoke of now, it's commonly often called type three diabetes because there's a thing called peripheral insulin resistance in your body, but there's central insulin resistance in your brain. Your brain cells are sensitive to insulin as well. And that's really what got me going here. So as a geriatric PT, I'd go in and I would do these chart reviews before an eval because I'm nothing if not thorough. And I would, <laughs> I'd always notice why do all of these people not only have high blood pressure or heart disease by that time I saw them, why do they have diabetes and high cholesterol as well? And so I essentially followed the symptoms. I followed the leaves and I followed the tree trunk and then I got to the root cause. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's insulin resistance. It's insulin. Why are we not focusing here to fix all of this other stuff. You know, you're going to kill the most birds with one stone if you know which question to focus on. And so I think that's a huge problem in medicine today. And especially in the field that I'm in with geriatric care, often I work with people in their seventies, eighties, nineties in geriatric physical therapy. They do not have the cognitive ability. They do not have the physical ability to care for themselves anymore properly. So a recent example, I did a, what's called a start of care on a woman with type two diabetes. And it's a huge problem for polypharmacy, my goodness. So she had close to 30 medications. She went to the hospital and they discharged her without her fast acting insulin, without an order for that. So I get to her house and it's close to 300 with no order for fast acting insulin. I mean, you want to talk about healthcare costs and rehospitalization rates. Medication errors is a huge problem, you know? So we're all focused on reducing this rehospitalization rate. And I'm like, why don't we help these people not get sick in the first place? Why don't we educate their caretakers on why perhaps administering fast acting insulin and then giving her a grilled cheese sandwich is not the optimal strategy to manage her diabetes? Why don't we just do this basic health education that should be required in schools, right? But it's not. And unfortunately, because of the repetition of false weight loss dogma, it's not common sense either. So I think that we have to take full responsibility, put our big girl pants on, as my grandma always says, put your big girl pants on (laughs) and take responsibility for our health and take responsibility for really digging through the research as we have. I have not met another professional that's as in line with I am regarding pretty much everything on health as I have with you. So thank you. Yeah, but there are some big problems and I see it firsthand. And I thought to myself, who's helping the people in the gray zone of healthcare? You know, the people that aren't clinically sick, but they're certainly not healthy, right? And I think another thing that as healthcare providers, we have to take further ownership here. A lot of healthcare providers are chronically stressed, 
chronically sleep deprived, poor nutrition, poor physical activity, and patients are looking to healthcare providers to be an example. And so I think this should be a call to arms for healthcare providers to lead by example. If you want to help your patients, you need to first help yourself. And I think that that is the most powerful thing that a healthcare provider can really do for their patients is to set a good example. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated. And cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose of three grams actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com equpfoods.com slash Cynthia20. You definitely want to check this out. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. 
product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's interesting. So the listeners know my backgrounds in ER medicine and cardiology. And I remember there were days towards the end of me working in cardiology where I was so sad to write Mm -hmm. 10 to 15 prescriptions for someone in clinic. And I would say it was always, you know, I definitely got to the point where I would say, I would love to help you not be on so many medications, but part of the problem is we have conditioned our patients to expect a pill to take away their symptom instead of doing the hard work, because it is much harder for me as a clinician to sit down and teach you harder Mm -hmm. in the sense that it takes more time to teach you about the value of high quality sleep, the value of, you know, eating a nutrient dense diet of proper stress management of just physical movement and activity of the value of connection with others. You know, I just did a podcast with John Levy talking exactly about how we as humans really need to be connected and think about how many of your geriatric patients are isolated and how sad they are. Especially during COVID. Yeah. I think that's, you know, broken heart syndrome, which is an actual syndrome. It's called Takasobo cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. It happens in cardiology. And I wonder how many deaths that were attributable to COVID were really a manifestation of the degree of loneliness, which this is a whole separate conversation. But I agree with you wholeheartedly that we as healthcare professionals need to serve as a an example for our patients. I laughed when I trained in Baltimore, one of the hospitals that I worked at when I was a nurse was a big cardiovascular center. I think this is probably what got me so interested in cardiology And some of the cardiovascular surgeons, this is back when people could still smoke on the campus, they would sit outside with their fried chicken and their cigarettes. And I always said to the other staff, I was like, that's a terrible example. They're going to go operate on someone and, you know, bypass arteries that are clogged and there they're smoking. I'm like, this is a terrible example. So much to your point, I think that we need to lead the charge. We need Mm -hmm. to be the ones that are really, you know, walking the walk. And that's why I think the work that you're doing and certainly the work that I'm doing is so really valuable because the thought of writing more prescriptions really was breaking my heart, which is why I pivoted away from that. So when we're looking at, you know, trying to make that shift, looking for healthcare professionals that can help guide you through this process you know, I think it's really important to focus on the mindset piece as it pertains to weight loss resistance, limiting beliefs, because this is what I think sometimes can even be more problematic than the old nutritional dogma is just the belief in yourself or the lack of belief in yourself. And so I know you do a really beautiful job with this, with your own patient. So let's talk about limiting beliefs as they pertain to women, as they pertain to weight loss resistance or losing weight in general because there's such a huge focus in society to elevate women who are skinny and thin and lose weight, 
and to be very critical and very derogatory towards women who are struggling to lose weight. And yet we don't understand that there's a lot more behind than just, you know, someone lacking the ability to stop eating. There's so much more to it than that. And the judgy, like judgmentalism that I see on social media, I think I just came up with a new word. Judgmentalism. Yes, judgmentalism. (laughs) That was not purposeful. This degree of judgment of others when they don't fully understand like their background, what they're going through, their life experiences. There's a lot that goes on that's beyond just the food that you're putting in your mouth for sure. I'm still learning. I'm going to be the first to admit that the only way that I have learned is through my own experience, which is limited. You know, I had to lose weight after I had a child, but I have not had to deal with decades of obesity, like a lot of the people coming to me. And so how I've really tried to learn is just reflective listening, listening, reflecting, journaling, and trying to come back with tools that they can use and really trying to work out themes of limiting thoughts. And I mean, we could do a whole nother episode on common limiting <laughs> thoughts. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, I think that we have to have the right strategy. So I view weight loss as a coin with two sides. So the first side is that low insulin strategy, but you also have to have the mindset and the behavior change strategies. This is why I developed my program, right? So that I could teach, you know, how you're like, I didn't want to write these prescriptions. I wanted to teach. And I thought, what would I tell my geriatric patients 20 years ago? If I could sit down with them as long as I wanted and share the information they need to know to get healthy. So that's what I did. But through that program, there's coaching. And I learned that just because you give someone the right strategy doesn't mean they're going to follow through. And I thought, why? To me, it's so cognitive. You know, I'm such an intellectual person that when I know better, I do better. But for some people, they know what to do and they're not doing it and they're stuck. And they're thinking, why am I self-sabotaging myself? And I think. I'll try to keep this brief and you can cut me off whenever you need. So (laughs) I think it's helpful to go over the stages of change. And then I'll teach you a little tool that we can use in each of those. So, you know, these there's when someone's thinking about starting maybe intermittent fasting or changing their diet or starting an exercise program, whatever the change is, there's different stages. There's pre-contemplation where it's not even on your radar. And then you're contemplating about it. You're preparing for it. Then you take action and you do it. I can't do that with my finger for some reason. (laughs) And then you're going to maintain that habit. And then you're going to relapse. That relapse is part of the process. We need to stop worrying about it so much. So I think another, you know, we're going to come full circle here when we're talking about weight loss myths or dogmas is that there's a losing phase and then there's a maintenance phase. That's a bunch of nonsense. You're going to have to lose weight how you want to live the rest of your life. Otherwise, it's going to come back on. You're always in maintenance. So I think that that's one thing to consider. But when we're talking about limiting thoughts, I think the fear, I came up with an acronym that says, spells out fear. And I think this one's helpful for someone who knows they need to make a change and for some reason cannot force themselves to take action or at least take action consistently. And so I like going through examples. The F is for these fear-based thoughts. And then the E is for emotion, A is for action, and R is for result. I was doing an Instagram live. I don't do these often, but I did them once. (laughs) And I was working through this exercise with the lady, and she gave me permission to share her story. And I said, what are you so afraid about? Why are you not taking the actions that you need to take to lose the weight? And she goes, honestly, I think two things. I don't believe that I can do this. 
I don't really believe that anything is going to work for me. I don't. Deep down in my heart, I don't think it's going to work. I've tried everything. Nothing works. And then the second one was my weight is a protection. So she'd had emotional trauma earlier in life and learned that if she was bigger, that men would leave her alone. And so her weight was an emotional shield and it was a tool. And she didn't have the emotional tools required to let go of the weight and still protect herself and feel safe emotionally. So this is the mindset piece, right? And so I kind of walked her through. I said, okay, so we have these fears in our subconscious brain saying you can't do this. And further, if you do do this, you're going to be in danger emotionally. What emotions do you think those fears drive? They drive apathy. They drive procrastination. Those are the two big ones that I run into apathy and procrastination, more fear excuses, you know, really. And then what actions do those lead to negative actions is what I call that sitting on the couch, eating potato chips and M&Ms, popcorn at night, not doing anything that, you know, you need to be doing. And then the result is you feel guilty and you feel shameful because you're not doing what you know, you need to do for your health and further for your family's well-being. Because it's never about you. You know, it's always about your greater why. And so I think that's a really powerful place to start is why is it important for you to change your behavior? Do it for them. Do it for your kids, your grandkids, your spouse, your aging parents that you need to take care of. So that's the fear to really break down. That's just one example. And I think like a nice journal prompt is what fears do I have around losing weight? And then just pause and let it go and write it out and then say like, what emotions stem from those, what actions, what results. And that just get, brings some clarity. And sometimes those fears are like little mice in a dark room. You know, you turn on the light and they run away and that's all it takes is, Oh, that's why I'm not taking action. Now that I know that I can do better. But for some people, it's harder than that. These are deep roots in their brain that they've thought. And so it might take some more psychological care, or counseling, journaling to really get through, to break through to the point where they're ready to take action. And I know we're probably running short on time. So can I give one more little sure, exercise? Okay. The clear exercise I think is helpful for people who are in the action maintenance or relapse phase, early relapse. And this just brings some clarity around why you're not doing what you intended to do or why um, you emotionally eat at night when you said that you weren't going to emotionally eat at night. And this stands for circumstance and context. So that's the C. The L is for line of thought. E is emotions. A is actions. R is results. Perfect example for me that I continue to struggle with, but I'm working on it is late night snacking. So what's the circumstance and context? Kids are in bed. Dawson has always been so hard. I think I've talked to you about this the last two times. We've talked to you so hard to put to bed. And then our little one-year-old Leah, she's fine, you know, but still you have to put him to bed. And then you're sitting on the couch and you breathe (sighs) a moment to myself, right? So the circumstances, I'm tired. It's the end of the day and I'm a little bit stressed out. What's my line of thought? And you probably just heard it. This is my time. I have a moment to myself. Chocolate sounds really good. And it used to be popcorn every night. I mean, now at least I'm doing some lower insulin impacting foods. Sometimes it's still popcorn, you know? And so what's the line of thought? It's my time. I deserve this. I want to break. I'm bored, right? So again, these are heavy grooves and you have to get used to like, what are those triggering thoughts for you? And then what emotions stem from that? I don't care. A little bit's not going to hurt anything. 
I'll start again tomorrow, you know? So again, like that apathy is really, or feeling restricted, feeling like, oh, I can't do this diet anymore. I feel so restricted. Well, then you're going to lead to action of going and eating whatever you said that you weren't going to eat at night. And then you have the result of not losing weight, period. You know, so you can take that clear exercise through anything, you know, overeating dessert at a party, skipping your workout. You really, it just gives like a little framework to kind of analyze your behavior and analyze your line of thinking. So that when I catch myself thinking, oh, it's me time, I am going to relax. I deserve a break. I can then immediately extrapolate that line of thought to that's great. Go have a cup of tea instead of, okay, let's go have some cookies or let's go make a brownie mug, whatever you want to do. But when you start at the action, which is where so many weight loss programs start is do this, eat this, here's your meal plan. And you don't backtrack up to the belief, you know, the fears or the lines of thought that lead to those actions. I think that's really where something becomes unsustainable because they've just, they're working against their own thoughts. So we have to work on fixing those limiting thoughts. That's the other side of the weight loss coin. I think it's a really important one to focus on. And ironically, when I did my graduate thesis, Prochaska and DiClemente's trans theoretical model of change was a large part of what we were working on. And I think for many people, you know, they feel it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They feel yeah. guilty and the guilt drives the continued poor decisions. And yet if we back up and do a little bit more work before we actually start making those changes, oftentimes we can make them much more sustainable. And I have to agree with you that weight loss is a complicated topic. It's not as straightforward and linear as many of us no. want to believe that it is. And I can't tell you how many women over the years that I've worked with have shared with me, disclosed that you mentioned you had that one client that, you know, her weight was a protective mechanism. And for a lot of people, it is either because Mm -hmm. of traumas they've experienced at either major or minor traumas throughout their lifetime, because they just don't feel like they have an outlet for stress relief. And so I think that, you know, looking at it from a psychological perspective is really combined with some of those lifestyle modifications is really the best way to tackle those challenging weight loss resistance issues. So I could obviously speak to you for hours. And I know, it's been we such really a, could. <laughs> yes, it's really been such a pleasure to connect with you and we'll have Thank to bring you. you back. So let my community know how to connect with you. You have an amazing podcast yourself that I've oh, been very you. fortunate to have been on. You have a great yeah. YouTube channel. How can people connect with you? What's the easiest way to reach you on social media? Sure. I'm most active probably on YouTube. Um, I try to do at least a couple videos a month on there. They can just search Dr. Morgan Nolte. I'm at Dr. Morgan Nolte on Instagram. And then my website is weightlossforhealth.com. And you can link up my email if they have any questions. It's just mnolte at weightlossforhealth.com. But I think that you can tell I'm just so passionate about what I do. And I'm so passionate about spreading the word on insulin resistance And also just really listening to the mindset blocks and the beliefs and and developing tools and strategies to get the weight off so that they are not my patient in geriatric physical therapy when they're 70, 80, 90 years old, because so much can be prevented. And I'm so grateful to have had the chance to speak with you today and share this message. Yeah. Thank you so much. I look forward to our continued collaborations. Yes, me too. Thank you, Cynthia. 
Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. 